Walters is the place to watch the biggest college football game of opening weekend as Florida State takes on LSU this evening. Kickoff at 7.30. Walters is again this year the D.C. hangout for all FSU football fans. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Marlins one out here at the top of the third and here's a long fly ball hit toward left center field by Berger going back is the center fielder Young and it's into the bullpen for a home run. Jacob Berger now with two home runs in this game and they lead it by a score of 3-1. to one. Runners at first and third. The 3-1 pitch hit high in the air to left field. Blankenhorn going back on the warning track. He turns and looks and that one is way out of here. Brian De La Cruz a three-run homer and it's 9-1 Miami. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, September 3rd, 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. The Nats now have as many losses over the last four days as the team had over the previous two weeks. Let that sink in. Saturday at Nationals Park, an 11-5 loss to the Miami Marlins in Game 3 of a four-game series in which the Nats so far have been outscored 25-11. The Nats now have a four-game losing streak during which they have been outscored 32-11. And the Nats now have lost six of their last seven games. Trevor Williams on Saturday, off back-to-back good starts, got wrecked. This was not pleasant. Nine runs, eight earned in four innings. He gave up 12 hits, including four home runs. The Nats now are an incomprehensible 6-25 and against the Marlins over the last Two seasons. This episode of the Nat Chat Podcast is brought to you by Lose City Bar. This football season, make lose your spot. Lose is in the Columbia Heights neighborhood in Northwest DC, right by the Metro. Happy hour weekdays starting at 3 p.m. featuring discounted local beer and quick bites. Oh, by the way, we hours before the game on Saturday had major Nats news. We on Saturday morning learned that the Nationals' longtime international scouting director, Johnny DePuglia, has resigned raising all kinds of questions. We have a lot to get to. You know, Mark, what happened to all of the good things, all of the positive vibes (laughs) that we had with the Nats just a few weeks ago? Those days are fading fast, it seems. You know, the dog days are supposed to be in August, Al, but it's in September this year, at least the first week of September. Yeah, things have taken a dramatic turn in the opposite direction. And we hinted at this. We had a feeling maybe something like this would be forthcoming, that the good vibes they had going there for a while might not stick, that all those close games they were winning might flip the other way. 
that the schedule was going to get tougher, although we really haven't hit that part of September yet. What is it about the Marlins? I mean, they cannot. You thought last weekend, okay, maybe they finally figured it out. They won a couple games in a row in Miami. No, they're right back where they started. You gave the record just atrocious. And all due respect to the Marlins, but they're six games under against everybody else other than the Nationals this year. They would not be in the wild card race if not for the Nationals. Instead, they're a game and a half out, and they can very much thank the Nationals for that. That's kind of the only reason they're still lingering around in this race. It really has been something the last two seasons, the Nats getting beaten up by specific National League East teams. I mean, last year, the Nats got beat up by basically everyone in the division. But, you know, last year, Marlins and Phillies really stood out. This year, it's been better, but still this Marlins thing is so bizarre. And, you know, we've talked about this. Miami is 69 and 67 now with a run differential of minus 46. This is not a good Marlins team, but against the Nats, this, for whatever reason, is a very good Marlins team. It is strange. So before we get to the game, and look, there's not a ton to sink our teeth into with this game. This Johnny DePuglia thing from Saturday morning, you were among those who reported this. So Johnny DePuglia, probably a name if you're a hardcore Nats fan you're familiar with. He had been with the Nats since October 2009. He, during his time with the Nats, had a bunch of different titles, all basically saying the same thing. Again, international scouting director, but he was director of international operations. He was director of Latin American operations. He was vice president of international operations. He was vice president and assistant general manager of international operations. Johnny DePuglia was named the 2019 International Scout of the Year by the Scout of the Year Foundation at MLB's 2019 winter meetings. He's a guy who has been given major credit for the Nats signing the likes of, you know, outfielder Juan Soto and outfielder Victor Robles. And when the Nats got the outfield prospect, Christian Vaquero, a few years back, you know, DePuglia got credit for that. It stands out that he has resigned. It also stands out that what we talked about late in the last installment of this podcast remains a thing. Mike Rizzo still not having been officially extended. And, you know, most people viewed DePuglia as very much a Rizzo guy. A lot to say here, but I'll kind of give the floor to you because you've done the reporting on this. What can you tell us about what happened here? You know, I wish I could tell you something more definitive than I have. And maybe the fact that there isn't anything that definitive right now kind of helps in some ways shed some light on the subject. Johnny did confirm that he resigned to me. He wasn't going to give any other details. I have gathered that this wasn't some case of him being in trouble or punished. It's nothing having to do with his conduct or anything like that. He didn't do anything to get himself in a position where they forced him to resign. So I think it is a you know baseball slash business decision. Now, I know there's going to be an obvious tendency here to try to connect the dots between this and the situation with Mike Rizzo. And I'm not saying that that is inappropriate, that ultimately they may not some ways be connected to two situations. I don't know that, though, for a fact. I you know can interpret some things and kind of have a, a hunch of maybe some things that I've sort of thought to myself here lately that perhaps some of the hang up in the Rizzo discussions has been not just about him, but about his staff. And maybe some people above wanting there to be some changes to the rest of his staff and Rizzo having been very loyal to a lot of people beneath him for a lot of years, maybe holding firm. And for whatever reason, maybe this is one that they weren't able to work out. And so DePuglia resigns. Now, I mean, the timing is odd with a month to go in the season. You would think when a season is over, you may have some staff changes, things like that. But perhaps 
the reason for it would be to give him the opportunity now to get a head start. This is somebody who will probably be in demand and have some offers from other organizations, given his long track record in the business. So maybe it's a little bit of a favor to him for that. You know, Again, I'm connecting some dots here that may not truly be connected, but just the interpretation and the sense I get is that that may kind of all go together. And I'll just say I wouldn't be surprised. We don't know yet, but I would not be surprised if and when this all gets done, Rizzo is re-signed, if there aren't some other changes to his staff and maybe some other people that have worked for him for a while are no longer with them by their own choice or by the organization's choice. Is your understanding that this was a true resignation or was this, as we have come to know in sports, a quote unquote resignation and he was sort of voluntold to resign? I don't know for sure. I would just say that given his ties to Rizzo, given the work he's done here over the years, the connection to the organization, I would find it hard to believe that he would just choose to leave at this time unless he already had something else lined up. And I don't know if that would be the case elsewhere. So, you know, we'll see how this plays out. But it would make more sense if he was told, hey, listen, we're going to have to make some changes out of respect to you. I want to give you the opportunity to walk away yourself and give you some time to go find something else because, you know, you deserve a, a good job and your choice of jobs that may be out there. But again, that's me reading tea leaves here and not actually knowing that for a fact. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to think that this isn't in some way connected to what's going on with Rizzo because the timing is odd and it would be awfully coincidental that we're having this, you know, apparent hang up in this official extending of Mike and all of a sudden this guy who's been with him for over a decade now resigns out of nowhere. Like, that's sort of hard to think, okay, that has nothing to do with what's happening with Rizzo. Like, really? You know, it's always tricky with especially the Nats. You know, we know some of the names of the non-Mike Rizzo front office members, but you don't hear a lot from them. They're not well-known in the way that other organizations have executives who are well-known. Like, I think most hardcore DC sports fans could name multiple executives with the football team, with the Wizards, with the Capitals, maybe even with the Nats. If you're a real Nats wonk, which is what a lot of people listening to this podcast are, you probably could. But, you know, like, how many times have you ever heard Johnny DePuglia speak if you don't cover the team? Like, probably not much. So, you know, Mike Rizzo, he is the president of baseball operations and general manager. Beneath him is this guy, Chris Klein, who's been around for a long time, assistant general manager and vice president of scouting operations. Klein comes up every year when the MLB draft comes up. DePuglia really has been attached to the international scouting. So everyone knows Juan Soto. Everyone knows Victor Robles. Everyone knows about the mess that the Nats Latin American operations were more than a decade ago when Mike Rizzo took over as GM. Do you think that DePuglia has taken some of the blame for what has happened with the Nats farm system to where no DePuglia hasn't been drafting guys, but maybe the international pipeline hasn't been as fruitful as the organization would want in terms of recent years. Yeah, I could see that. And I think as much as, look, he and they as an organization did a tremendous job turning what was a joke of a Latin operation in 2009 into a very good one that produced a superstar Juan Soto, but other big leaguers. And if I'm going to give you names like Victor Robles, Luis Garcia, Joanna Doan, Jose Ferrer, Wander Suero, Reynaldo Lopez, Wilmer Defoe, Jeffrey Rodriguez, Israel Pineda, you may say, well, these guys, a lot of cases are not stars. A lot of them are out of the game now, or they were here for a little while, weren't great. Getting guys into the big leagues when you sign them as 16-year-olds from the Dominican Republic or Venezuela is a success story in itself. So the bar is a little different, I think, 
sometimes when it comes to these. And yes, they hit the jackpot with Juan Soto and they thought they had it with Robles and it didn't turn out to be that way. But that's still a pretty good number of homegrown Latin American prospects to reach the big leagues. Certainly a better track record than they've had through the U.S. amateur draft in the same time. Now, having said that, there are some other names of players who have been given in more recent years some very sizable signing bonuses, seven-figure signing bonuses, who have not panned out. And I'm talking guys like Yasel Antuna, Armando Cruz, Andre Lara. There's still a few that, that are young enough that you're not going to write them off yet. Christian Vaquero, Jeremy De La Rosa. So there's still an opportunity for some of them. But there are some more names here in recent years where they have spent a lot of money on them, taking a shot at a 16-year-old from a small town in the Dominican, hoping they become top prospects, and they have not done that. So maybe there is a little bit of a realization of that. Maybe ownership saying, well, hang on a second, we've spent millions of dollars on players that never even reached the big leagues. It's one of the hardest things in sports to do, to scout, evaluate, sign, and develop these truly kids. And the system there, you're starting to watch these kids way younger than 16. (laughs) It's kind of the Wild West out there, and it's a very difficult process. Johnny was great at establishing relationships early in these kids' lives with their families, with the people they work with, their agents. You know, I think it was a big reason that they were able to convince some of these top prospects to sign with them versus other organizations. So I think he gets a lot of credit for that. But at some point, you also have to look at how many of them did make it to the big leagues, how many of them were worth what you wound up spending on them. And there's maybe a growing list here now of uh, guys who got a lot of money and didn't pan out. And you know, eventually you do have to evaluate the people making those decisions. And maybe there was some pressure from above to say, "Mm, maybe we can do better at that spot. And Mike Rizzo may not have been in a position to defend his guy. And that's why I said, I I am curious to see elsewhere in the organization as this all plays out over the next month. Plus, if there are other scenarios like that, and others who have been here for a while, and maybe coming under some more scrutiny for the jobs they've done, and maybe the lack of of players that they have um, signed or drafted and turned into big leaguers. You would think if DePuglia is being held up for scrutiny, then someone like Chris Klein might be held up for scrutiny, but we shall see. Johnny DePuglia, prior to working for the Nats, worked for the Boston Red Sox for 11 seasons, 1999 through 2009. Obviously, a lot of good things happened for the Red Sox during that time. So DePuglia was a part of that, was working with Theo Epstein. He was a part of the resurgence of the Red Sox. So Certainly deserves credit for that. But an interesting twist in this uh, Mike Rizzo saga for the Nats. And uh, we'll just stay tuned and see uh, what exactly ends up coming out of all of this. This episode of Nats Chat is brought to you by Lou City Bar. Lou City Bar in Columbia Heights wants to elevate your sports bar experience. Specialty brick oven pizzas start at $12.99, including margarita, buffalo chicken, three cheese, and more. Pick up a pie to go or stop in for fan favorites like the Double Patty District Burger and lose mouth-watering wings like Fireball Mumbo, Lemon Pepper, Old Bay, and Nashville Hot. Finally, indulge your sweet craving with our Carnival Fried Oreos topped with vanilla ice cream. Elevate your sports bar experience with us at Lou's. We're located a half block from the Columbia Heights Metro at 1400 Irving Street Northwest with garage parking available across the street. Explore our dine-in and takeout menu at www.lucecitybar.com and follow us on Instagram at Lou City Bar to stay updated on events and promotions. 
Hey guys, Al Galdi here to tell you about Factor, which is offering a great deal for listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast, 50% off. September has arrived. Uh, That means even more of a focus on the Nats promising young players, but that also means that your busy life now is even busier. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. It can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. Too busy this fall to cook, but you want to make sure that you're eating well? Well, with Factor, uh, skip the extra trip to the grocery store and skip the chopping, the prepping, and the cleaning up too, while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality that you need. Go to Factormeals.com slash NatsChat50 and use the code NatsChat50 for 50% off. One more time, Factormeals.com slash NatsChat50 and use the code NatsChat50 to get 50% off. This year has been a busy year in the DMV for buying tickets, myself included, and game time has come up in the clutch. One show that I have my eye on for next month after the season is Lauren Hill at Capital One Arena. Saturday night, October 21st. Make game time your spot for tickets. Hopefully, there might even be a West Coast playoff game to watch afterwards. Game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, and theater near you. Grab the tickets without the stress with game time. Here's what to do. Download the game time app, create an account, and use code NATSCHAT for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account and redeem code NATSCHAT, that's spelled N-A-T-S-C-H-A-T, for $20 off. Download game time today. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Here's your Dylan Cruz update for the game played on Saturday in Binghamton, New York. Cruz 0 for 4, right field, hitting second. Robert Hassel III got the nod. In center field, Cruz did strike out his average so far. It's a bit grisly in a week and a half. In AA, 147, and OPS currently at 503. Harrisburg was shut out by the Rumble Ponies, 3 to nothing. Now back to Mark and Al. This ball is served into left field. Going back is Alou up to the wall, and it's gone! Alou and Blankenhorn get to the wall, and they watch it fly. A three-run shot for Jesus Sanchez. The third home run of the day for Miami, and they've blown this one open early as the three-run homer makes it 6-1 Miami. So, yeah, the Nats did play a game on Saturday, and it was yet another loss, an 11-5 loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park. And, boy, was this a rough outing for Trevor Williams. It had been nice to see Williams pitch better over his last two starts. We know the deal with Trevor Williams. His last few months have not gone well, but Williams over his previous two starts had done well. Six scoreless innings in the 4-3 win over the Philadelphia Phillies in Williamsport, Pennsylvania on August 20th, and then two runs in seven innings in a 2-1 loss at the Miami Marlins last Sunday afternoon, August 27th. So the notion of Williams pitching well on Saturday wasn't that far-fetched, but he did not pitch well. Things did not go well for Williams. He allowed nine runs, eight earned in four innings. He gave up 12 hits, four home runs, a double, and seven singles. Among the four homers, a two-out, three-run homer by Brian De La Cruz on a bomb to left field over the Marlins bullpen in the top of the fourth for a 9-1 Marlins lead, 424 feet. Williams didn't issue any walks, so at least he had that going for him. 
But this was brutal. I mean, this really was one of the worst starts by a Nats pitcher this season. He now has allowed 33 home runs this season. That, uh, as of the taping of this podcast, is the third worst total in the majors. And if you take a big picture look at his season, first 11 starts, ERA of 393. Next 16 starts, ERA of 610. And that includes those two recent good starts that I just talked about. I mean, over half a season, right? 16 starts, he has had an ERA over six. His season really has come apart these last few months. Most home runs allowed in the National League, including the four of them in this game. And you said one of the worst starts of the year. There's a case to be made. It actually goes down with one of the worst starts in Nationals history. Now, it's a little subjective, a little bit of cherry picking of stats here, but I looked it up. He is the first in Nationals history to give up both nine runs and 12 hits in a single start. Now, there are guys who've given up more than nine runs. There are guys who've given up more than 12 hits, but that combination had not occurred before. And some of this was because of the extra inning game the day before and all the pitchers they used that Davey had to leave him in a little longer than he might have otherwise. But bigger picture here, it has not been good for him. And I get it. He's your number five starter and there's only so much you can expect. But at a time of year when we're talking about young starters and their workloads and thinking they may need to shut guys down, skip starts, Trevor Williams, for better or worse, is a guy that they kind of need to take the ball every fifth or sixth day and provide them some innings because he is a veteran who has done it before. Now, the problem is he hasn't done this as a full-time starter in four years. And Davey admitted after the game, he's kind of a little worried about that as well, the workload that Williams is at. He's up to 134 innings now, which is his most in four years. I don't know if they can afford to skip him or anything like that when you're also talking about Gore and Gray and Irvin. So it's a tough spot. I think all of us acknowledged at the outset when they signed him that he's going to start for them, but maybe there'd be a point where they would move him to the bullpen and they'd be better suited as a long reliever or swing man. The problem is they don't have better alternatives right now. and They certainly aren't going to push younger arms at the expense of a veteran who at least they're you know less concerned about his workload. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. Mackenzie Gore, Jake Irvin on workload limits, Josiah Gray potentially on one and not doing well, Trevor Williams now not doing well. You could make an argument for four guys out of the five members of the Nats rotation who maybe need to be lessened in terms of workload or need to be shut down at some point. Ironically, the guy we're not talking about in that regard is Patrick Corbin, if you could believe that. But yeah, like now is not the time for a veteran like this to be in the conversation of do you take him out of the rotation? Like, There are innings that need to be consumed before this regular season is up. It's a little disturbing that as this season has gone on, Gray has gotten worse, Gore has gotten worse, Williams has gotten worse. Irvin's gotten better, so you you give the Nats credit for that, and Corbin's Corbin, but this really has been a drastic fall-off for Trevor Williams, and you know, long-term, he's not a big part of what the Nats are doing. We get that. But it was nice what he had been doing for the Nats over the first few months of this season. And it has not only not gone well since then, it's gone terribly. Like, again, ERA is six over his last 16 starts. Like, you really can't spin that. That's really bad. And that's even with the two really good starts prior to this one. So shows you where it was at before that. The home runs are a huge problem. And I mean, look, let's be clear. This guy does not have the stuff to be able to get away with not locating. I mean, he was giving up home runs on fastballs that registered 88, 89, 90 miles an hour. 
If he doesn't locate those extremely well down in the zone, he's going to get hammered, which is exactly what happened in this game. And there was a little bit of stuff behind him. C.J. Abrams missed a pop-up and maybe a play or two else that could have been made that wasn't. But, I mean, come on, 12 hits and four bombs off him in four innings. Again, there's no real way to spin that any other direction. I'll be curious to see where this goes. They kind of have to keep starting him. But I'm also curious as we look forward, he's signed for next year, two-year, $13 million contract. Do they just say, well, he's part of the rotation? Or would they go into spring training into the winter and say, well, let's try to find some upgrades there. And maybe he's kind of that emergency starter, or maybe he starts the year in the rotation until Cade Cavalli is ready, and then they slide him out of it, something like that. For this organization to make the kind of progress that I think everybody wants them to make, they need to get to a point where Trevor Williams is not really considered one of their five core starting pitchers. He's more of a fallback in case something else goes wrong. It also stands out too who hit four homers off Williams on Saturday, the Marlins. This is not a very good hitting team. This is not a team that hits a lot of homers. Like It would be one thing if the Nats on Saturday played the Braves or the Dodgers or the Angels or the Rays. Those teams hit a lot of home runs. The Marlins don't, and yet the Marlins went deep four times off Trevor Williams in this game. You mentioned Kate Cavalli. It's impossible to predict this stuff. I get that. But you know, he's coming off this Tommy John surgery that he underwent in March. Do you think the realistic expectation is that he will be good to go for the start of next regular season? Or do you think this will be more a situation where he doesn't start pitching for the Nats at the major league level until, you know, at least a few weeks, maybe even a few months into the regular season? Yeah, I think it's the latter. And I think that's by choice and by design. I don't think that's because he won't physically necessarily be ready. Timeline-wise, 12 months would take him into March. So in, in theory, he if you stretch it out and say he had the surgery in like July, and then he goes through the whole rehab process, kind of like Tanner Rainey is right now, then you can come back 12 months later to be ready to pitch in big league games because you've already made some minor league rehab starts, and that's essentially what spring training would be. I think they, by design, are going to want to hold him off a little bit, not have him start spring training at the same place that the other guys are. I don't think the goal is going to be to build him up to be ready for opening day. I think the goal is going to be to build him up to maybe go pitch in the minors in April, make a month of rehab starts, and then be ready maybe sometime in May. A lot can happen between now and then. We still have to see. But I think that's their idea because, number one, there's no reason to force that and rush him to be back on opening day as though that's some kind of you know important target. But secondly, so that maybe they're not having the conversation we're having right now, a year from now, where because they held off, they can get Cade Cavalli through the 2024 season. Now, they may still have to limit his innings and shut him down at the end because this guy has zero big league track record, and they're going to be cognizant of that. But why force the issue to have him pitching in the big leagues in April if you're going to be shutting him down come August? Why not delay it a little bit and hopefully have him deeper into the season? Well, the other thing, too, is because he has such a limited track record at the major league level, would it even be that once he's good to go, you have him pitching at the major league level? Would they have him pitching in the minors just to continue his development? Because it's not like you'd be dropping him back into where he was. He was not a regular member of the rotation when this happened. He potentially could have been this season, but you know that was never something that became an actual thing. Sure. I mean, I, he does have to kind of earn his spot through performance. Now, I think if he's healthy, he's making the team out of spring training this past year. And that last start was really good when he got hurt. So I think he was trending in that direction. 
unless they go out and do something significant this winter in the rotation market, which is entirely possible, I think they would go into it believing that once he was healthy, he is going to be part of the rotation. But say he spends April technically on a rehab assignment at at AAA in their rotation, and say he struggles in that, and maybe he's physically ready to go, but performance-wise, he's not there yet. There's nothing to stop them from saying, okay, we're optioning you, and we're going to keep you down at AAA for a little while longer until you earn the spot in the big leagues. I think that's perfectly appropriate for them to do. Everybody wants to believe this guy's the real deal and that he is ultimately going to be at the ace of the staff. We just don't know that yet. There's very little actual evidence of him having done this. You know, think about Steven Strasburg, because there's an obvious comparison there. The difference is Strasburg had, what, 10, 12 big league starts under his belt, really good big league starts under his belt before he got hurt. So he had already sort of established himself. There was no question that once he was healthy, he was going to be back in the rotation. Cade Cavalli has not reached that point yet. They hope he gets there. But to some extent, yeah, he does still have to actually prove himself as a successful pitcher, let alone as a healthy pitcher. Yeah. The concern is that Cavalli, Gray, Gore, those guys need to hit because if they don't, it's not like there's another wave of highly regarded pitching prospects who the Nats have. Now, Jackson Rutledge can maybe end up being what he was drafted to be. So that's someone to be thinking about. But it really matters a lot that those guys work out, or at least a good chunk of them work out, because unlike with the situation with the outfielders, you know, you can't afford to have one or two of these pitchers miss, really. You can probably afford, if Robert Hassel III or Elijah Green doesn't work out, it's not good, but you probably can live with that if you're the Nats. If, say, Cavalli and Gore do not work out, that's a big blow to this rebuild. Like, you need these guys to hit. So we will see what happens. I remember thinking the day of the draft, when they didn't get Paul Skeens, and they didn't have the choice. Again, the Pirates took him. But one of my first thoughts was that just puts a lot of pressure on Cade Cavalli to be the guy. If Skeens is here, he's the guy. And now Cavalli, Gore, Gray, they all slot down one. And if somebody doesn't make it or gets hurt, it's a little easier to deal with that. In this case now, there's a lot of pressure on Cade Cavalli. If not, maybe they do feel like they have to go find somebody somewhere else, either through free agency or trade. Well, we on Saturday had something that we have not seen a lot of this season, and that is Davey Martinez using multiple relievers for multiple innings, such as life in a blowout loss of a game in which he used six relievers the previous night. Joe LaSorsa and Amos Willingham, who uh, is one of the Nats' September call-ups here so far, those two guys combined to allow two runs in five innings. LaSorsa officially allowed two runs in two innings. Willingham officially tossed three scoreless innings, although he in the top of the seventh allowed two inherited runners to score. The Nats had not been hitting lately. We had talked about that. You know, the offense on Saturday looks a little bit better because the Nats scored two runs in the bottom of the ninth, something they have done many times these last few years. In a blowout loss, scored a few runs in the ninth inning to make things look a little better. But the Nats, for the most part, did hit pretty well in this game. Five runs, 10 hits, four walks, three for six with runners in scoring position. Nats hit a couple more home runs. Balls are flying at Nationals Park this weekend. But I think what stood out as much as anything with the Nats in this game was the lineup. We talked about this a bit on the last installment of the podcast. Davey Martinez in recent days has gotten more aggressive batting younger Nats higher up in the lineups and not playing veterans as much or in the case of Dominic Smith batting him down in the lineup. Dom was a number eight batter for a second consecutive game. Ildemaro Vargas was not a starter for the Nats for a third time in three games in this series. But listen to the Nats lineup in this game, okay? Abrams, Thomas, Manessis, Blankenhorn, Keboom, Alou, Adams, Smith, 
and Jacob Young. Obviously, a lot of younger Nats, non-established Nats. But like, how about Blankenhorn in his second game with the Nats as the cleanup batter? Keep him in the five spot, Alou in the six spot. Riley Adams, who at times has been buried in these lineups, even with his recent slump, he was in the seventh spot. Boy, that really stands out. If you've been following this team this season and tracking these lineups, I don't know how that lineup didn't jump out at you on Saturday. I mean, you didn't have the Blankenhorn, Kibum, Alou, four, five, six on your bingo card earlier this year. Um, no, I don't think anybody would have seen that coming. Yeah, we talked about lineup depth kind of being an issue for them right now. And on a day when you're going to give Cabert Ruiz a day off, well-deserved for him, and you get Riley Adams in the lineup and you're not using Cabert as your DH, yeah, you got to find somebody else to hit cleanup, and those were their options. And he went with Blankenhorn, who's had some good quality at bats for them in two games. I don't know if it's sustainable or not, but he, he's done all right there. They're asking a lot of some guys who are not really have a track record of production. It's been nice to see Lane Thomas Homer last two days. Maybe he can get hot again here in September. Riley Adams, nice, good, solid contact for your RBI double. I mean, not to nitpick one at bat in the course of a game in which they gave up as many runs as they did, but there was one chance in the bottom of the second. Game's still close. They've already scored one run off Johnny Cueto. They've got the base loaded one out, and Jacob Young, the young guy, number nine hitter, comes up and immediately grounds into a 6-3 double play. This is a guy that's going to be very hard to double up because he is super fast. It was about the only way it's ever going to happen, a sharp grounder right up the middle of the shortstop, moving that direction, fields it, steps on the base, throws to first himself. Would have loved to see a little longer at bat there, make Cueto work, try to maybe get something going that inning, maybe even a squeeze bunt from a guy who we know can handle the bat well. That kind of killed whatever positive momentum they might have had, and then obviously things fell apart after that. But when you're playing guys with very little experience, you're going to have to understand there are going to be some at-bats that are quick, some at-bats that don't really deliver with runners in scoring position, and that's what happened there. Dominic Smith, on Saturday, did have a good game, starting first baseman, number eight batter, two for three, solo home run, an RBI double, and a walk. The Nats, once again, got a multi-hit game from Jake Alou, starting second baseman, number six batter, two for four, with a couple of singles. Uh, Mark just mentioned Jacob Young. He is the Nats starting center fielder, number nine batter, one for three, RBI single, and a walk. Travis Blankenhorn, starting left fielder, cleanup batter, one for three, with a single and a walk. Lane Thomas, like you said, homered, right fielder, number two batter, one for three with that solo homer. Also had an outfield assist, but he also had a fielding error. You know, there was some sloppiness from the Nats in this game. Lane in the Marlins, two-run seventh, a fielding error. He allowed the ball to go right by him on a single by Jesus Sanchez to right field. And then how about the error by C.J. Abrams in this game? Williams working from the stretch and the pitch. Popped in the air on the left side. Kibu moving over with Abrams through the shadows. Abrams can't get it. It's a fair ball. Abrams somehow fully in the shade there to his left, and he just didn't secure the catch. This was brutal. I don't know. Did he lose the ball in the sun? He near the left field line, completely whiffed on catching a fly ball off the bat A Jazz Chisholm Jr. And Abrams also had an error in the game on Thursday night, you know, he's not been hitting a ton lately. He did have the homer on Friday night, but uh, that was a bizarre error that Abrams had on Saturday. I don't think it was the sun monster. I think it was the uh, shade monster that got him on that one because there was no sun in his eyes. He was standing in the shade. I don't know how to explain that one at all, except for this and larger issue that I, I noticed today and maybe we're seeing it the last couple of days. We've talked about the schedule that they're on 
right now. Long road trip to four different cities, no off day after that. They look a little worn down to me right now. Quality of play maybe is a reflection of that. They got to get through Sunday's game and then finally get a day off Monday and then a two-game series with the Mets and another off day after that. They need it. And this time of year, that will wear on you. Not an excuse. You have to deal with the schedule that you're given and you got to try to play your best baseball. But they did look probably more so than I've seen here in a while. They look kind of run down in this game, I thought. At any point, did the Nats fans in attendance chant Quado, Quado, <laughs> like we had in the 2013 National League wildcard game? Or did that not happen on Saturday? Sadly, no. I mean, that would have been a great pull by the fans here. And um, fortunately, they didn't do that. Maybe he would have dropped the ball and who knows what might have happened after that. You know who Johnny Cueto's manager was that night? And I believe it was his last night as manager of the Cincinnati Reds, Dusty Baker. So if not for that, who knows what the Reds do in the playoffs? Who knows if Dusty ever makes it to DC? And then who knows if he ever makes it to Houston and finally wins his World Series? Yeah, that was one of the many uh, playoff losses for Dusty in his time prior to joining the Nats. And we know what happened when he did join the Nats. But that is the ultimate example of a crowd impacting a baseball game. I cannot think of any better example of a crowd at a baseball game. You don't normally see that, right? You hear about crowds at basketball games and football games impacting things. At baseball games, not so much. On that night, that very much was the case. You had this renaissance of Pittsburgh Pirates baseball And that was a spectacular scene on television. And those chants getting to Cueto to when he dropped that ball and the stadium erupted when he did that. I'll never forget that. That was some scene. It was 21 years of frustration for baseball fans in Pittsburgh since Sid Bream and Francisco Cabrera finally getting a chance to have their moment. And they made the most of it. And I think a lot of you out there know that I grew up a Pirates fan. My family originally from Pittsburgh watching that game. From home, it was an emotional night and a a very cool night. Sadly, there have not been many of them since then. No, you had that great renaissance from 2013 through 2015, but uh, not much since then for the Pirates. Well, you tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on our website too, NatsChatPodcast.com, in which you can buy a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. This episode of the Nats Chat Podcast has been brought to us by Lose City Bar. This football season, make Lose your spot. Lose is in the Columbia Heights neighborhood in Northwest D.C., right by the Metro. Happy hour weekdays beginning at 3 p.m. featuring discounted local beer and quick bites. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Visit timnewmark.com. Nats Chat is on the radio Sunday mornings, 11 to 12 on ESPN Richmond, which is 106.1 FM in the Richmond, Virginia area and ESPNRichmond.com online. Next up for the Nats is game four of this four-game series against the Marlins at Nationals Park. Nats trying to avoid a four-game sweep, 1.35 p.m. first pitch on Sunday, and Josiah Gray will be the Nats starting pitcher. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. <laughs> Hit well the left center field back toward the track and that ball is gone. Russell Martin tune up in Pittsburgh.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.